If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Um, I'm excited to be with you this morning, excited to be sharing with you. We're going to be working through the 17th chapter of the book of Acts together. Uh, this is a book that we've been working through for some time now, really really pouring into and, and being impressed upon by this chronicle of the New Testament, of the working of the Holy Spirit, uh, the movement of the Spirit there in the lives of people, in, in the lives of communities, uh, through the ministry of the apostles. And this is not just historically, okay, not just historically, but biblically, this is how God works, through people, normal people, people like you, people like me, he uses people to make the declaration um, the good news known to the world, that, that people might, through the power of the Holy Spirit, be awakened, uh, their eyes open, their hearts regenerated to new life. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the next step in that process, that process that Jesus promised was going to happen way back at the beginning of this book, uh, back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now listen, I love the Great Commission in Matthew 28. I, I love that command to go and make disciples where, where Jesus says, go, uh, make, baptize. But in this one, it's not so much as a command as Jesus just making a declaration of what's going to happen. And that's different than a command. That's different than go and do. This one is more, you're going to be. There's not an option. So as a child of the living God, as one who has been claimed by him, as one of his sheep, you are a witness for the good, and we have to confess sometimes for the not so good. So let's get in here and see what, see what God has for us. Acts chapter 17, we're going to read the first 15 verses. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now the Jews, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. When the brothers immediately, then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're going to need you here. Um, we're going to need you to send your spirit now. We're going to need you to come and do some work amongst us. You know that I'm not, that I'm not qualified. You know that I don't bring anything of myself here that, 
that makes me qualified to stand in front of any group of people and proclaim your word. So we're going to rest in you this morning. Uh, we're going to rest in, in your truth, your scriptures, your word uh, to come and do work amongst us. And we pray that you would do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Paul has a pretty clear mission strategy. Okay, from, from the time that he was commissioned and sent off by the church in Antioch, he has faithfully labored for the sake of the gospel. And specifically, he's taking that message to cities. And so contrary to some popular assumptions about the Christian faith, uh, that it is sort of only for the simple-minded, for the, for the rural country folk, uh, for those who, who maybe can't comprehend deeper truths, we see Paul dive right into society. He goes right to the metropolitan areas, and this is where he engages people. And the first person, look, and listen, we can go back to Philippi and see this. If you go back to chapter 16, you'll see the first person that Paul engages in conversation with is not some simpleton. It is a lady named Lydia, okay? And Lydia is a, she's sort of a fashionista type, okay? We're told she is a seller of purple goods. Okay, so her specialty is, is, as a person of society, is selling material to other people of society. She is elite in terms of culture. She is, she is not just some simpleton from the sticks. And that's who the Holy Spirit first awakened there. The slave girl and the jailer, they come after that in Philippi. And so as we look at chapter 17, we see Paul in two more cities. And I want us to pay really close attention to the methodology that he employs because I really think it flies in the face of what most people today consider to be an effective means of evangelism. I think we have, to some degree, fallen into the idea that what evangelism is is, is loud music and a fiery communicator, uh, somebody who jumps and shouts. Now, I'm not a jumper or a shouter, so... You're going to be okay. Um, I don't know. We may get there. I, I can't lie to you. Um, somebody who jumps, somebody who shouts. And just to be straight with you, we want somebody who makes people cry. I mean, that's really what's become the essence of evangelism. If I can get somebody who will make people cry at the end of the service, they'll raise their hand, they'll walk the aisle, and everyone will celebrate that. But, but Paul, Paul goes at it a little bit different. Paul goes at it a little bit different. Look at verse 2. And Paul went in, okay, so to the synagogue, this is where he goes in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So he's not on a random street corner, all right? He is, he is not riding around on a bicycle, handing out tracks. He's not bombarding people while they're pumping gas or anything like that. That's not his tactic here, okay? He's not, he's not standing on the steps of the state house. He's not out there with signs telling everybody to get their stuff right or else. That's not his methodology. He's in the synagogue. Now, what type of people were in the synagogue? Yeah, religious people were in. It's okay. You can respond. I'm okay with that. <laughs> religious people were in the synagogue. Jews were in the synagogue. These are Hebrews. They're Israelites. And anyone else who is there, any Gentiles who are present, are either proselytes, meaning that they've converted to the Jewish faith, or they're what we would call God-fearers, just like we saw Lydia in Philippi. And we're told that Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. That he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, from what we would call the Old Testament. We have to remember that at this point, the Holy Spirit is still writing the New Testament. The Gospels are being penned. Those stories are being shared at this moment. And the epistles will soon be written to these very churches that we're talking about each week. So the Scriptures consisted of those 39 books of the Old Testament canon. And a great deal, a great deal of first century liturgy was simply the reading of the Scriptures. They didn't have, they didn't have life way. They didn't have cross... You can basically add way to the end of any word and make it a Christian publishing house. They didn't have those things. They didn't have family Christian stores. They didn't have Amazon to buy the books. They depended on the priest to read 
the Scriptures to them. And so Paul, seizing upon this opportunity, meets them where they are, both in terms of physical location and proximity, but also in terms of spiritual interest, and he reasoned with them. He engages them, and he did this, we're told in verse 3, by explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. And that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true, but that's not all of it. And he didn't stop there, and this is important. Presenting people with half versions of the gospel is not presenting them with the gospel. Yes, Jesus had to suffer, but Paul doesn't stop there. We cannot land only on the sacrifice because that's not the whole story. We have to tell the whole story. Did Jesus suffer? Yes. Did Jesus die? Yes. The problem with Jesus, listen to me, the problem with Jesus for the secular mind is not that he died. The problem with Jesus for the secular mind is not that he died. Everybody dies. That's normal. And listen, just to be straight with you, a lot of people died on Roman crosses. This was a common method that they used to execute people. Jesus is not unique in that he died on a Roman cross. The problem with Jesus is not that he suffered, not even that he died, but that he didn't stay that way. That he did not stay that way. And that's what Paul is communicating here. He's Look at the language here. He's reasoning with them. Verse 3 says he's explaining and proving, not just that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, but for him to rise from the dead. At this point, from all we know, Paul hasn't even mentioned the name of Jesus. He's just working within the cultural framework to show that the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God, the one to, to whom all the law and the prophets point to, was always going to have to suffer, that he was always going to die, that he was going to have to rise again. And Paul says that it was necessary. Now look at the end of verse 3. Because then after making it clear that the Christ would suffer and then rise from the dead, Paul says, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. You see how brilliant this is? It's simple, but it's brilliant. This is, this is apologetics 101. This is what he's doing with these spiritual people. He goes, you believe there's a sovereign creator God. Remember, they're, they're in the synagogue, okay? They're into that. They've bought in that there is a creator, that he is sovereign, that he has made us. You believe that this God has made a covenant with you to redeem you from your sinful nature. They would have been that. These are the children of Abraham. They understood the covenant, so they're there. You believe that he will do this through a mediator, the Messiah, the Christ. They, they would have, they're still on board up until this point. Paul showed them that the word of God makes it clear that this Messiah would suffer, that he would die, and rise again. Maybe he went to Psalm 2. Maybe he went to Psalm 2 and showed them how the kings and rulers of the earth would set themselves against the Lord and his anointed one. Maybe he went to Isaiah 52 and 53 and unpacked the reality of the suffering servant. He could have gone to Psalm 118 and talked about how the stone that the builders rejected the one cast away had become the cornerstone. He might have gone through all of these. He might have gone through all. He might have gone through more. There's tons more. And then he demonstrated how Jesus was that man, that Messiah, the Christ. This is what we call an argument to its logical extreme, and it was effective. It was effective. No smoke, no mirrors, just a clear apologetic from Scripture. The major premise of the argument, the major premise of the argument is that the characteristics of the Christ are that he must suffer and rise from the dead. The minor premise is that Jesus modeled those things, that Jesus modeled those characteristics in his death and resurrection. The logical conclusion, therefore, is that Jesus is the Christ. He didn't try to entertain them. He didn't, he didn't try to coerce them 
or manipulate him. In fact, I don't see any place in this passage where Paul picked up a guitar or anything and just started playing just as I am until everybody in the room wept. I don't see that. Um, nor, that song wasn't written, so he couldn't have. But that's, we don't see that at all. He just reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving to them that Jesus is the Christ. What we do see is that some of them, this is verse 4, were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And this was the logical, hear me now, this was the reasonable conclusion that they reached, Jesus is the Christ. We don't know, we don't know exactly how long Paul was in Thessalonica. Um, some say it was just the three weeks that we see here. He reasoned with him for three weeks in the synagogue. Others would look at passages like Philippians uh, 4.16 where Paul thanks the Philippian church for sending him aid while he was in Thessalonica, saying, even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and again. Um, The reality is I'm not sure it matters how long he was there. What we can know for certain is that after people started following Christ, after people started following Christ and to some degree pulling out of the synagogue, the Jews were jealous. And that emotional response, that jealousy, spilled over into action. So they got a mob together. They gathered a mob, some somewhat what we see here is wicked men of the rabble. Uh, John Calvin called these guys sluggards. I don't know why I just like that word, sluggards. Um, anybody, whoever the first guy is to come and pick up my daughter for a date, in my opinion, he's a sluggard before he even gets a chance. All right, we're gonna have that. We're gonna have that talk on the front porch. Um, we're gonna have to explain that. To him. I just love that John Calvin calls them sluggards. And they marched to the house where Paul was staying. Listen, look at the mob mentality. They marched to the house where Paul was staying, seeking to capture him, but only managed to drag out this poor guy, Jason. Listen, um, I've, had some, I've had some house guests that were a bit of an inconvenience before. Um, they, you know, they make a mess, use too much hot water, um, watch ridiculous TV shows, whatever their, their issue is. I've never had one that got me into this type of trouble. Um, I've never had a situation that ended in me being drugged out of my home and paraded before the civil authorities. And just to take it a step further, I've never had someone stay with me that resulted in me having to give a monetary guarantee, a bond that made me responsible for their future actions. Jason has been put in a tough spot because of his association with the Apostle Paul. And so during the night, and I would argue this is perfectly within his rights, he, he sort of sends them off. During the night, Paul and Silas were sent away to Berea, and it's there in verse 10 that we see them again, as was their custom, enter the synagogue. And it's in verse 11 that we find these words. Now these Jews, this is in Berea, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things or so, the Berean church. We have a Berean Sunday school class at this church. It's not, probably not the most humble name for a class. They were most, more no, noble than the others, but this is okay. We're, we're on board, all right? Paul is doing the exact same thing he did in Thessalonica. The culture in Berea was just a little different. They were more noble. They had not only received the scriptures, they examined the scriptures. Then they examined them, it says, daily. Okay, so hearing the good news hearing what was probably the the same message that they heard in Thessalonica, they searched the scriptures themselves to see if what Paul was telling them was true. This was more than a one-hour commitment on a Sunday for them, a Saturday for them. This is more than that. They, They wanted to know. They wanted 
to find out for themselves. It mattered to them. It mattered to them. The scriptures mattered to them. I know that seems juvenile, but how important is that? They, they actually cared. They cared. If these things, they wanted to know if these things that they were hearing were true. So let's follow that example, okay? Paul is telling them about the Messiah. He's telling them about Jesus. He's pointing them to the scriptures, again, to the Old Testament. So let's go there with him. Uh, let's look at how Jesus of Nazareth, the son of a Jewish carpenter, fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah of the Old Testament. We're going to jump around a lot. It is not a game of Bible chase. You don't have to get to each book and chapter and verse. Um, just, just see if you can hang on. Here we go. Let's start at the beginning. In Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve received the prophecy that the Messiah would be born of a woman. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It may seem simple that God said he's going to be born of a woman, but at this point, nobody has been born of a woman. This is just Adam and Eve. This is revolutionary thought that the Messiah is going to come from you, from your line. They had never seen this before. This was a revolutionary prophecy there. And we see the fulfillment of this when Jesus was born of a woman named Mary in what Galatians 4.4 calls the fullness of time. 2,000 years later, in Genesis 12.3, God makes a promise to Abraham that the Messiah would come through his bloodline, through Isaac, through Jacob. So listen, not Ishmael, not Esau, and then in Genesis 49.10, we're told that it will be through Jacob's son, Judah. Now that's specific, okay? There were 12 tribes of Israel, 12 tribes, 12 sons. He's not coming from Benjamin. He's not coming from Levi. He's coming from Judah. And if you actually read through the genealogy of Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, you'll see that's exactly the earthly tribe into which our Lord was born. Later in Isaiah 7:14, we see the prophecy, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Again, just look at the first chapter of Matthew, uh, verses 18 through 23, and you'll see the fulfillment of that prophecy in Jesus. Matthew even quotes this Isaiah passage to help his readers connect it to the word of God. And, and listen, Joseph was very conflicted. Okay, Joseph was extremely conflicted. Virgins do not get pregnant. Um, that you can, that's one of those things you can hang your hat on as a human. Virgins do not get pregnant. It's one of those things that, that many of us in the church are probably a little too comfortable with. Okay, we've become numb to this reality, uh, numb to the weight of that. Okay, so Joseph lived it. Joseph lived that. He felt that. It was a burden to him. You think he slept real well the night Mary started trying to unpack that to him? Now, a lot of grooms lose sleep leading up to the wedding, but this was different. Um, it's not until an angel of the Lord appeared to him and audibly spoke to him that he got on board. And I don't, I don't blame him. Let's keep going. This, was, this is what Paul was doing. He's sort of taking the Emmaus road of a uh, model of evangelism that Jesus used after his resurrection. He, he's walking to Emmaus, that seven-mile journey from Jerusalem. He comes across two disciples, and he... This is what it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So here we go. In Micah 5.2, we, re we read this. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, ancient of days. So the king is coming 
from Bethlehem. He's going to be born in Bethlehem in the territory of Judah. That shouldn't be a surprise, right? We just established that he's coming from Judah, so he should be born in the territory of Judah. But Bethlehem's not significant enough to be counted as one of the clans. It's not significant enough. Isn't that just like God? Isn't it just like God? He's not coming from, he's not coming from Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn son. He's not coming from Esau, the firstborn of Isaac, not from one of Jesse's strong sons. I, I, he's not coming from one of the sons that Jesse thought to bring to the prophet. No, no, he's coming from David, the harp-playing kid out in the field who Jesse didn't even remember was alive until Samuel says, isn't somebody missing? And then poor Jesse has to go, oh yeah, one of my sons isn't here. This is how God works. He, he takes the insignificant and makes them significant. And you know where Jesus was born? Not in Nazareth, no. No, providentially, a census was being taken. Uh, Caesar required that, and his earthly parents had to travel to a very little town called Bethlehem, and that's where our Lord was born. How about Malachi 3.1? I like this one a lot. I like this one a lot. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So that's, that's, there you go, John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. In Luke 2, we see Jesus' parents take him to the temple. In John 2, we see Jesus literally suddenly appear in the temple when he cleanses it. I just want to point out to you that the Romans destroyed the temple in AD 70. The physical temple was absolutely demolished, leaving essentially a retaining wall as a, rem as a reminder for us of what stood there. The ferocity of that destruction can still be observed today. If you go to Jerusalem, the Messiah had to come before 70 A.D. Because after that, there is no physical temple. Are you convinced yet? Are you with me? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Let's, just a few more. We'll go fast. Get ready. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 says that the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame men leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Just look at the list of miracles. John calls them signs. Just look at the signs that Jesus performed. Paul and his boys are accused of turning the world upside down in verse 6. I would argue Jesus did the same thing. He turned the world upside down. That's exactly what the miracles were. Because the truth is, when you turn a world that is upside down as a result of sin, when you turn that upside down world upside down, you are making it right. You're turning it right side up. This is exactly what Jesus did in his miracles. He did not just give a person a voice so that they could speak. He gave them a voice so they could praise. He didn't just give them legs so they could walk, but that they could feel the fullness of how God created them to be. When Jesus performed a miracle, he wasn't just restoring the health of somebody. He was restoring the natural order to what it's meant to be. He's taking them back to Eden. That's what the miracles of Jesus displayed. Zechariah 9.9 9 says, The king is coming to Jerusalem, righteous and having salvation, and that he is humbly mounted on a colt, the full of a donkey. We see that take place at the triumphal entry. Conquering kings don't ride on donkeys. They just, you didn't do that. You got a stallion, something legit. You didn't want to be on a donkey. This is how the king of glory chose to ride into Jerusalem. Psalm 41.9 says that he would be betrayed by a friend. It says that even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. In Zechariah 11.12, it prophesies that the betrayer of Jesus, this close friend of his, would be paid 30 pieces of silver for handing him over to the Jewish authorities. In Matthew 27, we see Judas Iscariot fulfilling the role of Psalm 41 and receiving the payment of Zechariah 11 
We also see him throwing that payment into the temple before taking his own life. Listen, we could go through this all day. We could go through this all day. We could Actually, we could spend several days here doing this. The Old Testament is pointing us not just to a moment in time, but to a person. It's pointing us to the person. It's pointing us to Jesus Christ. It struck me uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, many, of you, many of you know that Laurie and I are, are pregnant with our third child. Uh, mostly Laurie is pregnant with our third child. Um, so we, we went to the doctor for the sonogram. All right, we're, we're planners. We're planners, so we wanted, to, we wanted to find out the gender of the baby. Uh, the kids were very excited, you know, to pick out paint colors and stuff like that uh, for a nursery. Our five-year-old wasn't all that impressed with the black and white squiggly lines on the screen. Um, but the sonogram showed us a glimpse. It showed us a glimpse. Listen, we were able to see that this baby is a boy, um, that his heart is, is beating well. You know, you can see that. You can see the little movement on the screen. Um, he, uh, you know, he, ha- he has a brain. That's good. You can see that in the sonogram, too. It's kind of creepy, but you can, you can see that. We celebrated that. Uh, we praised God for that fact. Uh, the ultrasound technician printed us out a bunch of those little, little weird pictures that nobody can actually tell what they are, but you swear it's a baby. Um, and maybe you can make out the shape of a head, see the arms and legs of this little like avocado-sized baby at the time. Um, But all it really does, all it really does is heighten the anticipation for what's to come. Now, the sonogram is sort of like a movie preview. It's it's pointing towards something that is coming, okay? It's sort of like a, a shadow of what's to come. Yes, the baby exists. Yes, it is real and even present. Now, just... He's here. Just ask the expectant mother who's carrying this child around. They'll tell you that baby is real, and this is just like Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus is, the, is one with God. He's one with the Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And there has never been a time void of the second person of the Trinity, void of the Son of God. That has never been the case. Josh Patterson says this, With the birth of Christ... The expectancy of the Old Testament gave way to the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. This is the incarnation, where the Redeemer of God's elect, being the eternal Son of God, became man. This is what Paul was communicating to these cities. This was his message. The Savior has come. The sonogram picture is here. The long-awaited, long-anticipated King has come. The one the one that you are waiting for. He's here. The price has been paid. The wounds were real. The suffering was real. The death was real. But this Messiah, this King, this Lord, did not stay that way. He has risen. And listen to me, this is who we celebrate. This is who we celebrate. This is who we praise. This is who we magnify. This is who we have sang of today in this room. This is why we're here. Now, are there going to be challenges? Absolutely. There are going to be a whole bunch of Saul's in our lives. Well, we see that even in this passage. Isn't it a bit ironic that the Jews from Thessalonica actually seek out Paul and track him down in Berea, just like Paul had done back in Acts 8 when he was going house to house, town to town, dragging people out of their homes and arresting them for following Christ. The glory of the gospel is not that there are persecutors, Glory of the gospel is not that there are persecutors, not that there are men like Saul, but even that a man like Saul can be transformed into the man 
that we call Paul. By the power of the Holy Spirit, this is what God does. The glory of the gospel is that a man like me, uh, that a person like you, one who was dead in sin, an enemy of righteousness, one who was far off from God, can be brought near. The glory of the gospel is that the fashionista, the slave girl, the jailer, the white collar, the blue collar, the Jew, the Greek, and everything in between can be transformed, can be redeemed, and can be saved. That those who are dead can be made alive in Christ. That's the message of the scriptures. And ultimately, our message is the same as the one Paul gave to these cities. It's very short, very easy to remember. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. He's your ransom. He's your justification. He's your salvation. Jesus is the gospel. I don't know if you're note takers. I don't know if y'all do that. Um, I'm sort of a, if you write anything down, that's it. Jesus is the gospel. There is no gospel without him. Can you rest in that truth today? Can you trust in that truth? Put your faith in that truth. Hold fast to that truth that this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Will you seek that out like the Bereans? Listen to me. We have only scratched the surface today. There, there is more work to be done. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter takes up the same charge that Paul gives, and he says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Hear, hear that again. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is not Peter making a suggestion. He's not going, you know, a good idea would be to know what you're talking about. That's not what he's doing here. He's saying, this is how you honor the Lord your God, that any time somebody asks you, you're prepared to give them a defense, the reason for the hope that was in you. We don't have a blind faith. We have a faith rooted in a risen Savior. We don't have to pretend like we don't know we have the Word of God. And listen, they sell these everywhere. Mine actually was made in China. Isn't that ironic? They'll make them for us, but they won't let their people read them. Search for him. Be prepared. It says this is how we honor Christ the Lord is holy. And if you will, if you will, and that's, that's really on you. That, that's really on you. If, if, you'll, if you'll search the scriptures for him, they will not return void. Jesus promised that when he said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. That is not the promise of wealth and happiness. That is the promise of Him. This is the promise of Christ. Not that you get all this stuff, but that you get me. He isn't going to give you a serpent when you're looking for a fish. He isn't going to give you a stone when you're looking for bread. He wants to give good things to His children. And there is no better gift, no higher good, than Jesus Christ Himself. Will you put your hope in Him? Because based on what I'm reading, I'd contend there's nothing more reasonable that we can do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word.
to us. I, th- I thank you for the fact that you have made yourself known to your creatures. Lord, we praise you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. We ask that you would be with us as we go from here, Lord, that, that we would understand this is how we honor you. This is how we bring glory to you. It's by sharing you. Lord, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.